You are listening to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream on the web at kzyx.org. Altogether, we are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, A Love Story. We are living in strange times, and they could possibly get stranger. One constant that has been with us for 237 years, or 33 years, is the Electoral College. Our guest today has written a very good book about it. All about the twists and turns, the ups and downs, and the intrigue. Oh yes, the intrigue. Let me introduce him and let him tell us all about it. Today's guest is Alexander Kesar. He is the author of many books, including The Right to Vote, which was among the finalists for the Pulitzer Prize and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and won the Beverage Award from the American Historical Association. He is the Matthew W. Sterling, Jr., Professor of History and Social Policy at the John F. Kennedy School of Government, Harvard University. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Alexander Kesar to Politics, A Love Story. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bob. Thank you very much for inviting me onto the show. Well, thank you for coming on. And this is your book, so why don't you get us started? I have over eight pages of notes, questions, and quotes from your book if we need them. So why don't you just get us going? Well, I guess um, the place I want to start about the book and, and you know what I think is its uniqueness um, is that it's, it's not a book that is simply dealing with the issue of is the Electoral College a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, it's not simply making a case against the Electoral College. Um, although I, in fact, do not favor continuation of the, of the Electoral College in its, in its current form. Um, but, you know, books like that have been written for, uh, books have been written for at least a century, actually, uh, pros and cons on the Electoral College, and articles and shorter works for uh, for two centuries. But what I try to address in this book is something that became a puzzle to me, and which I think also puzzles you know, a couple of hundred million American citizens every four years, which was, why do we have this institution? Why do we still have this sort of clumsy, archaic, complicated way of electing presidents? And the puzzle... For me, when I began thinking about this and writing about it a little bit, because the project emerged gradually over the last two decades, um, the puzzle deepened the more that I learned. For one thing, I learned that there have been about 900 constitutional amendments introduced in Congress wow. to, uh, to abolish or uh, significantly reform the Electoral College. That's a lot. That's, that tells me that, for, and, they, and they started about 1800. Uh, and in fact, on six occasions, one branch of Congress has approved uh, a constitutional amendment. That was one thing I learned. Um, I also learned that as long as we've had public opinion polls, a majority of the American population, um, and often a very large majority, has favored replacing it with a national popular vote. Uh, so that, you know, that, and the, you know, the final thing, of course, is that. Um, is that the Electoral College doesn't conform with or doesn't match the basic values 
that we as a democracy profess, including the value of one person, one vote. That's one person. Not all votes are equal in the electoral college system. So that that raised the question of again that deepened the question of well, why do we still have this thing? And the book is an attempt to try to answer that question. In the beginning, you pointed out that an electoral college vote in Wyoming represents 190,000 residents. In California, 680,000 people. That's totally uneven. That's totally uneven, and my apologies to you folks in California. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yes, it's the, the, purport, the disproportions are significant. Uh, you referred to uh, the 1800 uh, election. That was uh, the first hiccup in the new nation's electoral system, John Adams versus Thomas Jefferson, and they precipitated a severe and messy crisis that was resolved in the House of Representatives only after prolonged public and behind-the-scenes drama, and it resulted in the 12th Amendment. Uh, would you want to tell us about that? Sure. Um, the original design of the Electoral College... Uh, was a little bit different from what we have today. Um, it said that each elector would cast two electoral votes without specifying one for president and one for vice president. And the notion in the minds of the framers, and this tells you how far their thinking was from the current world and actually from what the world had become within a couple of decades after the Constitution was written, but their thinking was that um, there would be maybe three, four, five notable candidates, and any given elector would vote for two of them, and the person who got the most votes would become president, and the person who got the second most votes would become vice president. It, it, this was a, they were imagining a world that did not have political parties. That world did not exist by 1800 and the crisis you're talking about. So what happened in that election, what, uh, we should note, in the previous election, in 1796, um, it was also Adams against Jefferson, and Adams won very narrowly. Uh, and, but Jefferson became vice president, even though they were antagonists. And even though by 1800 they really represented different parties as well, parties had formed and, uh, and they represented different ones. In the 1800 election, the crisis emerged when Jefferson or Jefferson's party won the election, but Jefferson's vice presidential candidate, Aaron Burr, received the same number of electoral votes. But the Constitution specified that, uh, that, that well, they had a tie, and they went to the tie-breaking mechanism, which was that the election was to be decided in the House of Representatives with each state getting one vote. It's a very arcane system. And by the way, that aspect of the system still exists. Uh, and so... Uh, and then so in, in the House of Representatives, as you mentioned, there was jogging and horse trading that went on for a long time until finally Jefferson was chosen as president and Aaron Burr, who was the most distrusted man in politics of the era, became vice president. Uh, the upshot of that was that uh, Congress passed a constitutional amendment uh, to 
um, to, to compelling electors to quote designate separately their votes for president and vice president. But there's another twist to the story that I want to mention because it's it's emblematic of of, of really a theme in the story. Um, which was that there was another problem leading up to the 1800 election and that was embedded in the 1800 election, which was that states, or I'll back up a second, the Constitution says that states uh, and state legislatures can decide the manner in which a state's electors are chosen. It still says that. Um, that means that there does not have to be a popular vote for president. It means the legislatures can decide. The legislatures can choose electors by themselves, and they still can, and that looms on the horizon for this November. Um, and they also did not, the, I think most of the framers believed that electors would be chosen in districts, and that was sort of what happened, but then as the 1800 election approached, um, Parties began, states began switching to winner-take-all, which is the system that prevails now in most states. Why did they do that? Not for reasons of principle, but for partisan reasons. In 1796, remember Jefferson had lost the election closely to Adams. There was a key elector from Virginia who had voted for Adams, which was considered perfidy. Uh, in the world of Virginia. So the Virginia legislature in 1800 passed a new law saying uh, we're going to use winner-take-all. We're no longer going to use districts. So whoever wins the entire st the state of Virginia wins all of its electoral votes. Surprise, surprise, that was Jefferson. Of course, Massachusetts retaliated and did something sim uh, similar. And then they were off to the races so that winner-take-all starts emerging um, as this distortion of the intent of the framers. And between 1800 and 1804, uh, there is a very serious attempt, the first serious attempt to banish winner-take-all and uh, create a system in which electors are chosen by district, and that narrowly fails to get through Congress. The flaws didn't really show up until the third election because uh, the, f the first one in eight 1788, uh, there were small flaws, but uh, the, in choosing a different, uh, different, the different states choosing a president in different ways, there was no uniformity. But it was a foregone conclusion that Washington would be president, and he was reelected, but he refused to continue after his second uh, term. So the flaws didn't show up until that election with uh, uh, Jefferson and Adams. No, that, that's right. That's right. But there were there were already signs in the book that tells, uh, you know, the kind of jockeying games playing that was going on and people having to throw away certain, quote, second votes for vice president to avoid these things. It just it it never functions smoothly. And, and you're quite right that only the fact that, that everybody supported Washington uh, disguised that for the first eight years. And then there was the, uh, the challenges of reform. Uh, there were three items, uh, a constitutional amendment to choose electors through popular elections in districts, or an amendment to oblige each elector to cast one vote for president and separate vote for vice president, or to abolish the office of elector and allow immediate suffrage. 200 years later, number three is still with us. <laughs> yes. 
200 years later, um, the, to, to abolish the office of elector and just have, quote, immediate suffrage, um, in effect, a popular vote to choose the president, has, that has been the leading reform idea, or it's actually an abolition of the Electoral College idea. That has been the leading idea since, re only since the 1960s, for reasons which we can discuss if you'd like. But certainly from the 1960s on, that has been the idea that is in, that is in most people's minds when we think about Electoral College reform. I mean, in fact, for, I think for most people, when they think about getting rid of the Electoral College, they automatically think that the alternative would be a national popular vote. And the irony is that when the framers created the Electoral College, they did it to minimize intrigue and cabal. <laughs> yes, you caught the irony quite perfectly. They did it to <laughs> minimize intrigue and cabal, and instead they maximized intrigue uh, and and cabal. You know, they did. We have to understand. I mean, you know, and uh, I mean, the the framer. I mean, I'm. I, you know, there's a lot of almost idolatry about about the framers as all wise um, men, and they were all men. Um, but they were very gifted people, and they were very knowledgeable um, about history and what they could know about politics. Um, but th they inhabited a completely different world. They did not They did not know about parties. They had no real notion of what election campaigns would look like. Um, you know, they did, and they had, and they did not have a clear notion of how the electoral college uh, would work. I mean, I'll give an example about that. They seem to have been divided about a very critical issue. Um, some of them thought that the electoral college or colleges, which is the plural, when you refer to the plural, it's the meeting of the electors in each state, that the electoral college would uh, choose the president most of the time or almost all the time. Others thought that the electoral colleges would serve as a kind of nominating board, choosing the three best candidates from however many ran, and that the decision would actually be left to the House of Representatives. Um, and, you know, with this crazy contingent election system, each state gets one vote. They didn't know how their own system would work. Hmm. And then the next step you point out is the 1824 election, the melee in New York, you call it. <laughs> right. right. The melee in New York is really um, uh, the short version of the melee in New York is that, uh, you know, we reach back into our history, uh, into our memories of, of history, the 1824 election was one in which there were multiple, multiple candidates. They all claimed to be Republicans. The Federalist Party, by this point, had, uh, had disappeared. So you had originally five and then four candidates uh, for president. Nobody won a majority of electoral votes uh, or a uh, majority of, of the popular vote, and the election uh, went uh, and ended up in the House of Representatives. Um, the key actor in New York politics at this time was Martin Van Buren, who is widely perceived as the founder of modern political parties and a political operator par excellence, who later it will become uh, Secretary of State and then President of the United States. Um, but at this point, he was simply the dominant or a dominant force 
in New York politics. And to summarize a very complicated story, um, he maneuvered, one of the issues that was at stake was whether electors would be chosen by district or winner-take-all in New York. He wanted winner-take-all because he, he wanted to control the entire delegation. And he maneuvered, but the legislature was under tremendous popular pressure to switch to districts. And so what he did, the first step of what he did was that he went to Washington. He was a senator at the time. He both ran New York politics and he was a senator. This was a fairly common configuration because at that time, senators were chosen by state legislatures. So there's a direct link between the legislature uh, and and the senator. So what Van Buren did was he blocked district reform in New York by going to Washington and advocating it and speaking out with the reform forces and then communicating back to New York saying, look, it looks like there's going to be a national bill mandating districts. That would be better than a state bill. Um, so let's let's hold off on the state bill, and we'll get it done nationally. Of course, he was lying mm. um, or misleading, <laughs> and um, the, so the state remained winner take all, um, and. Van Buren was able to keep his candidate, who was a man named Crawford, in the mix um, and give and grant him some electoral votes. Although not, you know, he, he was not able to control the whole delegation. Then, you know, the complicated story afterwards is that then when it went to the House of Representatives, um, Van Buren also maneuvered around in the New York delegation um, and basically did everything he could to try to uh, to promote the election of his candidate, often with rather un- unethical means. But what the, what the whole episode is a clear illustration of, and it's hard to capture the zaniness of it um, in, in a brief interview, was of non-stop, clever, energetic political maneuvering and gaming the system in one way after another um, in order to promote certain presidential candidacies, even if that meant saying one thing to the New York State Legislature and another thing to the U.S. Senate. Uh, Intrigue and cabal, of course. Uh, One thing I wanted to point out that you uh, brought forth very nicely. Uh, Over the last 150 years, the Electoral College has remained unpopular in many quarters, and winner-take-all has been the institution's most unpopular feature. As its supporters repeatedly pointed out, a proportional system had the immense advantage of not importing the problem of gerrymandering into the process of selecting a president. Here we still have it. Yes, no, I mean, I mean, the, the, you know, what happens, it starts in the late 19th century. I mean, if the, if the, in some sense, default alternative to winner-take-all in people's minds in the first half of the 19th century was to have districts, was to choose electors by districts. 
by the late 19th century, a lot of people were saying that's not good because that that means that we'll have gerry, we'll have a gerrymandering problem. And and in the late 19th century, by the way, in terms of Congress and state legislatures, they had gerrymandering problems that make ours look pale in comparison. <laughs> wow. Uh, I mean, gerrymandering was done so wholesale, um, and and there was also no requirement, no constitutional requirement that constant that. Uh, that districts conform to one person, one vote. That doesn't happen until the Supreme Court makes some rulings in the 1960s. So you had you had districts of widely, widely different, uh, so, you know, sizes for state legislatures and for Congress. I think I remember there's one figure somewhere. I think, and this is as late as 1950, which said that for this, I, I forget whether it was the California State Senate uh, or or the legislature, but that. Uh, Los Angeles County had the same number of uh, senators or representatives as Shasta County, um, even though Los Angeles County at that time was something like 100 or 150 times bigger um, in in population. So huge gerrymandering problems, and that led people to think increasingly um, that uh, that using a proportional system, a proportional system would say if you win. 30% 30% of the vote in California or Alabama or Massachusetts, you get 30% of the electoral votes of the state. Um, and that would bring the totals much more closely in line with the national popular vote. That idea, by the way, is not only still out there, but I, my own perception is that it is now the leading alternative to a national popular vote that there are a number of people who are, who are reform-minded people who would prefer to have a national popular vote, um, but would say, okay, um, you know, we can't quite get there. There's less political objection to having the Electoral College remain in form, but we can get rid of winner-take-all by switching to proportional elections, and let's do it. Let me get, take this opportunity to reintroduce you. You are listening to Politics, a Love Story. Our guest today is Alex Kazar, and he's talking about his latest book, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? And I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Before we get to one of the most controversial elections, and I would say, it's in my opinion, maybe yours is different, the Tilden Hayes election of 1876. But before we do that, you bring up the 1874 committee report and the seven, the 22nd joint rule. Could you explain those? <laughs> you have a knack for pointing to some of the sort of trickiest and um, complicated uh, issues. What? Um, well, I just love this book. You know, I can tell. I can tell. You, 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 you have, at the moment, you may have a greater mastery of its details than I do. Not, not um, close. Not close. Um, but uh, basically, um, what happens after the Civil War um, and during Reconstruction, there are debates about re about readmitting the states of the Confederacy to the Union, or readmitting them into voting status in the Union. Um, and there were various both political and legal legal fiction debates about this. One, one question was, had they, 
you know, had they ever left the union? Well, one argument was to say, well, they, they, secession is illegal, so they could not have actually seceded, so they were always in the union. But the question was, you know, which, what kind of votes would count from the Confederate states? Um, and there were disputes about that in the 18, late 1860s and in the 1870s, and this had to do with both votes for Congress and uh, possibly electoral votes. What people in Congress realized was that there was no mechanism in Congress, um, there were, and there certainly was no constitutional mechanism, for deciding whether a slate of electoral votes was legitimate or not, or if there were two competing slates of electoral votes, which one should count. And the 22nd Joint Rule was about that, and it was a rule that seemed to imply, um, although it was disputed at the time, that, um, that either branch of Congress could reject a slate of electors. Okay, this becomes germane as I take this and lead into the 1876 election. The 1876 election is, I think, legitimate. I think you're quite right. Thus far, it's the greatest crisis hmm. in American uh, uh, polit political history. And what happens in 1876, and again, you remember, this is not long after the Civil War, yep. and there's still northern troops in the South. Uh, Reconstruction. And the country is very much on edge. Um, and the, the, the outcome of the election uh, is disputed, both in terms of popular votes and electoral votes. The, the conventional wisdom is that Samuel Tilden, the Democrat governor of New York, won the popular vote. Um, it's, it's not clear. The issue was that there was significant voter suppression um, of black votes in the South. So it's, it's not clear what the vote totals um, really meant. But there were a total of, I forget, it was 39, something like that, disputed electoral votes. Um, and the question was how to decide who those votes should come to. Most of them came from states where Tilden had ostensibly won the popular vote, but where they had, there had been massive voter suppression, so that the legitimacy of his victory was in doubt. In, you know, what that led to, I mean, you know, we said, well, who, who should get these electoral votes? And then it was a question of who should decide. And it got very hung up in Congress, and again, this may become germane in another, you know, couple of months, <laughs> Because the Constitution is murky about how the Congress should deal with this. It basically uses a passive voice. And it, it says that the, ele the electoral votes in the states will be sent to Congress, and they shall be counted in the presence of the Speaker and the presence of the President of the Senate. Um, well, shall be counted is passive. It doesn't say counted by whom. And Congress in, the, in 1876, and this could happen again, uh, got, was divided on who should, uh, uh, who should, you know, who had the right to count the votes. It was compounded by the fact that one branch of the, of the Congress was controlled by Democrats, another by the Senate. Um, and 
you know, they couldn't agree. Eventually, they appoint, there is appointed a 15-member special commission, which includes some members of Congress and some other notables. And that commission, um, in effect, votes on each of the disputed ele uh, uh, electoral votes. It votes eight to seven, eight, four, and seven, you know, against, in favor of giving the electoral votes to Rutherford B. Hayes, and that is how he becomes president. Wasn't uh, there also uh, two slates of electors sent from some states? Yes. And how did that, that affect I things? I mentioned that. Yes, and you had two slates, um, and, 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 but the issue then was how does Congress decide which one is the right slate? Right. Uh, and they had no clear mechanism for deciding that. Um, and the 22nd joint rule was kind of tossed out. Um, and, you know, they, uh, it went on and on. There was, in the end, there was no agreed upon and legitimate process for resolving the dispute. But as you pointed out, Alex, uh, the thing that decided it all was that Hayes agreed to be a one-term president and to remove the troops from the South. That was what decided the whole thing, wasn't it? That's right. No, I mean, in the end, it was it was a deal, right? I mean, again, we have to remember that the Democratic Party was the party most associated uh, with the South. It had it had political strength in the South. Much of the Democratic Party had not been really in favor of the Civil War. It was the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, um, that was anti-slavery, that had launched the Civil War and supported it, and it was the Republican Party, and particularly its more, quotes, radical wing, um, that really wanted to transform Southern society after the war uh, away from what it had been under slavery. And that, you know, and it was the Republicans um, who had pressed for the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed the right to vote to African Americans. Um, so the Republicans were the party of relative racial equality. Um, the Democrats uh, weren't so sure the Democrats uh, had, had, the, had the South. Um, and, and the deal that was made made the Republican Hayes uh, president uh, for one term. And although there was no written agreement, it is widely understood and agreed that Hayes basically said he would withdraw troops from the South. And what that meant was that it was the end of Reconstruction and that the South would be left to its own devices to figure out what it had to do. Now moving along, uh, there was a, a Lodge Gossett resolution in 1950, and it was defeated. Could you uh, explain that a little bit? Sure. The Lodge Gossett resolution in 1950 was another strange bird <laughs> in this long story. Um, it begins, I think it be, the story begins in two places. One place it begins is with Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., who's actually, whose who's grandfather plays a key role in Reconstruction uh, era, era politics. Um, but, or maybe it's Henry Cabot Lodge III. But in any case, Senator from Massachusetts, he's a liberal Republican. He actually favors getting rid of the Electoral College and moving to a national popular vote. But he doesn't think he can get it. Uh, he sponsors such an amendment in 1940. By the late 1940s, he doesn't think he can get that, but he still wants to get rid of the Electoral College. 
both as a matter of principle, but also because he thinks that the Republican Party should be trying to make some inroads in the South. Um, and that uh, if you got rid of winner take all, that would help the Republican Party to do that. Uh, so he's a, he, But he's he is basically a liberal. I mean, his politics were, you know, the equivalent of what a, a liberal Democrats would be today. Uh, so he he is the prime mover of of, of of a resolution calling for the proportional distribution of electoral votes for each state. He's the prime mover of it in the Senate. Um, Gossett, his partner in the House, is. A very different kind of guy. The Gossett is a congressman from Texas and an ardent segregationist, uh, racist, and anti-Semite. Hmm. <laughs> um, I stumbled across um, in, 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 in his papers, uh, which I think are at Baylor University in, in, in Texas. He had... Um, he had a fairly large collection of anti-Semitic pamphlets in his papers, um, and, and and he was commented on. I mean, he was he was known for 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 his views. But Gossett, representing the White South, had a different interest. What was going on for Gossett and for and for a number of his colleagues um, was that they felt that the large liberal states of the North were wielding too much power in presidential politics. Uh, New York most prominently, but New York, Illinois, and Pennsylvania. Um, And they thought that they were wielding too much power because of winner-take-all. And given that, you know, the way they were understanding the politics of it was that Minority groups within those states were, had become powerful swing voters, and thus the, the state's leading politicians had to placate those, the most important of whom, to Gossett and his allies, um, were African Americans who had migrated uh, to the northern states during World War One and continuing uh, in the 1930s and uh, during World War Two, so that they constituted a notable fraction of the population in the North. And in the North, unlike the South, they could vote. So what Gossett and his allies wanted to do was to eliminate winner-take-all to reduce the power of these large northern states, which they believed would reduce pressure on them through the national government to desegregate and and enfranchise African Americans. So it was basically all about civil rights and race from their point of view. Um, Lodge and Gossett form this alliance. It it goes to the Senate first, where pretty much to the surprise of most observers, after some fairly short weeks of debate, um, the Senate votes to approve this constitutional amendment. Part of what's in the backdrop of people's minds in 1950, I mean, the settings of of all of these stories are fairly complicated, was that in 1948, the presidential election had four candidates. Um, It had Thomas Dewey, the Republican of New York, Harry Truman, uh, who who had been president after FDR's death, and 
um, and would be elected, uh, but it also had a left liberal Democrat named Henry Wallace um, representing Democrats who thought that Truman was too centrist or too conservative. And then there was a break off from the Democratic Party because of civil rights from Southern politicians who formed the Dixiecrat Party with Strom Thurmond of South Carolina as its presidential candidate. It was widely viewed in 1948 that the election could easily end up in the House of Representatives again, and that either Wallace or more likely Strom Thurmond um, would end up becoming the kingmaker in the election. Uh, that's to say, if nobody won a majority of the electoral votes, that, uh, that, that Thurmond could go in and trade his electoral votes uh, for policy concessions. That's part, that's part of the backdrop to this 1950 legislation, that, that that had struck a chill in the minds of many people who really, really wanted to, uh, to, to get rid of or modify the Electoral College. So the Senate goes along with this. Uh, the Senate approves a constitutional amendment by the requisite two-thirds vote. Um, it's a bit of a surprise, but, uh, but it happens. And then it goes to the House. And then what happened at that point, it was just interesting as a researcher for me to, um, to to follow this. It's as though members of the House and even members of the punditocracy, which existed then, although not quite in the same uh, form that it does today, but people hadn't been paying much attention to this. I think they didn't really think it would pass the Senate. Um, it was yet another electoral college measure. Um, past the Senate, people began paying attention to it. And what people began realizing was that the most obvious consequence of this, uh, of transforming the Electoral College in this way would be that it would bolster the fortunes of the segregationist South. Um, and so they ran a can they basically, there was a, you know, a public relations campaign. It lasted only about six weeks. Um, and then the Lodge Gossett resolution was defeated by a very large margin um, in the House. So you go from the, it's this strange phenomenon where uh, a measure gets more than a two-thirds vote in the Senate, and then less than two months later, it gets about a two-thirds negative vote in the House. And then we move ahead to 1969-70 uh, when the reverse occurred. Uh, yes. Uh, only in the mid-20th century did proposals for a national popular vote begin to gain traction. Support for the idea then mushroomed, almost culminating in congressional passage of a constitutional amendment in 1969-70. Since that time, a national popular vote has remained the foremost option for replacing the Electoral College. Um, that was a good point that you put in there. Uh, yes, no, and, and, and again, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in, in our discussion, it's not until the mid-20th century, but the national popular vote does become the dominant alternative by the early 1960s. There's some key actors who really change their minds. And, you know, this, I mean, this is the story that I think your listeners, you know, uh, who are concerned about the present might find most interesting and compelling and, and perhaps uh, frustrating at the end, but uh, 
support mobilizes in the 1960s. Support, it's kind of, there's a cascade of support uh, for a national popular vote. Again, to avoid the problem of a of multiple parties and a third party candidate choosing uh, the president. You know, there's a George Wallace in 1968 does pretty much what Strom Thurmond was trying to do in 1948, and there there were fears that Wallace would become the kingmaker. The 1960 election was so close that nobody really knows who won the popular vote. Um, the splits between the North and the South and the Democratic Party were leading to numerous faithless electors because Southern Democratic electors did not want to vote for the candidates of the party. So the problems were multiplying, and you know this is also a period of a great embrace of democracy. I mean, the period of the civil rights movement is coming out of World War II. Uh, democratic values were very present, and I think you know maybe the the icing on the cake was the Supreme Court's decisions in 1962-63. That one person, one vote was the law of the land. And even though the Supreme Court said, ah, by the way, this doesn't apply to the Electoral College or mm. the Senate, um, uh, this is the principle that, that guides our elections. And a lot of people say, well, well, why shouldn't that principle guide the most important election that we have? Uh, one person, one vote. So all of these factors funnel into support for a national popular vote uh, amendment that passes the House of Representatives in 1969 with this, I think the vote is 82% favorable. Right. That's, that's an extraordinary vote, right? I mean, yes. I mean, you know, if, if you, it'll be hard to get an 82% vote in the House of Representatives about what time it was. <laughs> um, and that they, that they got this was just extraordinary. And then it went to the Senate. Um, this is September of 1969. Um, it went to the Senate, and momentum was high. There was great optimism. Um, and then it got stalled in the Senate uh, for pretty much a year. Um, got stalled in part because the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, James Eastland, hmm. was a Mississippi planter and segregationist who wanted to uh, to slow it down, and I guess I let me do something sideways here. Um, Southern politicians, Southern white politicians, had opposed a national popular vote at this point for about eighty years. They had also opposed it when there was slavery, but this, but the white South had powerful reasons for not wanting a national popular vote, and this forces me to do a little bit of a segue back into the late 19th century, but what happens in effect um, is that uh, the 15th Amendment to the Constitution formally enfranchises African Americans. And what that does is to uh, increase the number of electoral votes that each southern state gets compared to the Civil War, and I'm going to have to take yet another step back. Um, the number of electoral votes that a state gets is equivalent to the number of, of representatives it has in the House of Representatives, plus two for its senators, okay? The first number is proportional to its population, but not to its voting population. Before the Civil War, 
the population that counted towards representation was all adult free people and three-fifths of all slaves. Okay, and that gave the South extra representation in Congress and thus in the Electoral College, because the formula for the Electoral College um, took congressional representation as one of its ingredients. After the Civil War, African Americans are formally enfranchised, which increases with respect to before the Civil War, the number of seats in Congress and electoral votes that the South gets. But then by 1890, uh, African Americans are disenfranchised again. So white Southerners basically are getting a big bonus from the Electoral College. Um, another way to illustrate this is that, and I, the figure is somewhere in the book, and I'm, I'm approximating these, but that in a year like 1910, um, the same number of votes were cast for president in Ohio as in five or six southern states combined. Uh, because only white people voted in the South, and also they were all Democrats by that point, so that there was not much of a contest. Um, but the states of the South got many more electoral votes per voter, many, many more, uh, than did the state of Ohio. So the Electoral College was structurally biased in favor of, uh, of the segregation of the South. And to, st to restate it one more way, the Electoral College does not impose any sanction on a state for voter suppression. Hmm. Uh, you get this, Any state gets the same number of electoral votes no matter how many or how few people are able to vote. Okay? So this is all part of the, really the shaping, the thoughts, the mentality of Southern politicians in the 1960s, and they are hell-bent on preserving the Electoral College. James Eastland, chair of the Judiciary Committee, is one of them. He does not want this measure to advance. He moves things along slowly. And then there's a series of events that happen in 1970 that exacerbate tensions between North and South. One is that President Nixon nominates First one and then a second candidate to the Supreme Court. Sound familiar? Yes. Um, and the candidates to the Supreme Court, both of whom are Southern. There have been no Southern judges appointed to the court in a number of decades. And they are both rejected by the Senate. Um, one because of some fina questionable financial issues and the other because there was documentary evidence that he was uh, of his racism. Uh, but that takes that occupies about four or five months of the work of the Senate and of the Judiciary Committee, um, and then the renewal of the 1965 Voting Rights Act is up, um, and there is a battle over that, uh, and in fact the South loses that too. So it has Southern politicians have lost three battles in the Senate uh, in uh, between October of 1969. Um, and June of 1970, and they see the Electoral College fight as uh, as the way their their last their, their last battle. And what they do in the end is mount the filibuster, uh, and they you know basically prolonging debate and prolonging debate, and they and this goes on into the fall of 1970, and they prevent 
the national popular vote amendment from ever coming to the floor of the Senate for a vote. The way to overcome a filibuster uh, uh, is uh, at the time you needed a two-thirds vote. Now you need a, you need sixty votes. Um, but the the reformers fell about five, four or five votes short of being able to end debate and having a substantive debate. So what we have at this juncture, 1969-70, is a constitutional amendment that passes the House, comes very close uh, to um, passage in the Senate, was supported by members of both parties, was supported, although tepidly, by President Nixon, although he has no constitutional role in this. And the surveys of state legislatures indicated that there was a reasonably good chance, it wasn't certain, but a reasonably good chance that the, that an amendment would be ratified by the states. So, Alex, you have so many good passages uh, in your book. I'd like to read a couple, and then I would like to move us a little bit forward so we can spend a few minutes talking about today rather than yesterday. And one of yep. those sent, uh, passages I'd like to read uh, happened in 1956. Senator John Pastore of Rhode Island said, If we believe that this is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and that the President of the United States... Uh, not of the states, but of the people of the United States, why should we not adopt the principle that the president of the U.S. ought to be the popular selection of the people and that the popular vote of the country should count? And who opposed that but Senator John F. Kennedy? <laughs> uh, true. Uh, true, and I think that... I mean, Kennedy's opposition has often been cited as a, you know, and, and he was, Kenny was actually fairly eloquent in his opposition. Um, the, one of his leading assistants said later in, in the late 1960s uh, debates that Kennedy was actually doing that just to try to, to try to block some conservative reform measures um, and that had he lived, he would have favored electoral college reform had he not been assassinated. You know, uh, I think it was Ted Sorensen who made that statement. Yes. And I suspect it was sincere. Um, I think that in 1956, John Kennedy was already mapping out, and had already backed up pretty seriously, his pathway to the White House. And he, he was planning on working with an electoral college map that he knew. And I think that had a lot to do with the position that he took. So one other thing I'd like to read, and then uh, some, a couple of your concluding points, and then maybe we could go to the present. Uh, a, blue, a blue ribbon commission on electoral college reform that included an array of distinguished attorneys, judges, and academics, as well as two governors, two former members of Congress, and Walter Ruther, president of the United Auto Workers. They concluded that the electoral college method of electing a president of the United States is archaic, undemocratic, complex, ambiguous, indirect, and dangerous. <laughs> I think you nailed it. Yeah, I think they, I think they nailed it. All right. So you want to go on to the other? I do. I yes, the last uh, couple here. The nation has become more democratic since 18, since, I'm sorry, since 1787 and more committed to political equality. 
but the Electoral College has not. And your last two points. Whether the goal of implementing a national popular vote can be realized in the foreseeable future is an open question. For better or worse, we may now inhabit truly uncharted political terrain. Yes, that's where the book ends, as I recall. Yes, yeah, so now, where are we today? What do you think might happen? I know that prognostication is not a historian's fort. Right, but if you write about a subject like this, you have to, <laughs> you have to be prepared uh, to be asked to prognosticate. Um, I think, look, a prefatory statement, someone who's written, as I have, a fairly long book um, about the history of failures to get rid of the Electoral College does not end up being a wild-eyed optimist, saying, oh, this will be a piece of cake. Uh, I've demonstrated many reasons why it's been difficult. That said, I think that... I think that we are closer than at any point since the 1960s to being able to do something about this um, and being something to change the system. There is a pro-democratic, a small d, uh, multifaceted movement out there in the country in many different places in the country dealing with race, immigration, um, voter suppression, and many other things um, that is strong and that is energized. Um, and the Electoral College is part, is part of that agenda. There are uh, strong members of Congress and active members of Congress, uh, including my own Senator Elizabeth Warren, who as a presidential candidate said we should get rid of the um, Electoral College. Uh, standing in the way of this movement, of course, uh, has been the Republican Party, for, which, which since 1980, not before that, but since 1980 has been pretty uniformly opposed to electoral college reform or abolition um, and has concluded that the electoral college benefits the Republican Party and, and thus it's a perfectly good idea. But one of the things I learned from looking at the long span of history is that political circumstances as well as ideas but political circumstances and conditions change um, and changes on the ground can then produce changes in position um, i think it is possible i don't have a crystal ball i can't um, i can't guarantee it but i think it's quite possible that the republican party uh, after the coming election, um, may be in a period of crisis itself. Um, whether it will split or not is unclear. I mean, in some ways, it really almost already has, with never Trumpers um, mo moving elsewhere. I, but I also think that the calculus of the Republican Party and of Republican leaders may start to look different if, suppose, Democrats win Texas and Georgia, hmm. uh, to pick two non-random examples. And according to the polling, that's not out of the question. Uh, those have been two reliably Republican states. And if you've got a state that's reliably in your column, then winner-take-all is a great thing, right? If you, yes. if you, you know, If you have a state that you can reliably win 60-40, 
then you love winner take all because you're going to win the state and you're not going to get 60% of its electoral votes. You're going to get the whole thing. But if it starts to become less predictable and less reliable, then your view of winner take all may shift. Mm. And you might prefer something that was more popular, more dispersed, or more proportional. We have only a couple of minutes left. I want to propose two thoughts for you to comment on. Number one, uh, when the Democrats took over the House of Representatives after the 2018 election, they passed a bill, their first bill called H.R. 1, which would uh, change a lot of things in voting and possibly get rid of gerrymandering. And then the second thing is the two bombshells that dropped by the New York Times yesterday and today. We won't know the result of that uh, for another week or two or three. So that could change the dynamic as well, couldn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, Democrats in Congress have been, um, you know, I've been supporting sort of pro-democracy against small D uh, reforms now, you know, for several years and, and quite energetically. And, um, you know, it is possible, again, I, you know, I don't know, but um, it is possible that the Republicans are going to suffer a very decisive uh, defeat in this election. Um, and the revelations in the New York Times in the last couple of days... <laughs> to that. I'm, I'm going to take this opportunity to thank you from the bottom of my heart. This has been a very enjoyable conversation that we've had. I'm so happy that you agreed to be on the show and that you wrote this terrific book, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? And you are Alexander Kesar. And I want to thank you again. This has been a terrific show. Uh, and I hope if you write other books, we could uh, talk about them on this show as well. So thank well, you very much. I would like to do that, and thank you very much for inviting me onto the show, and I've very much enjoyed our conversation. So, well, thank you. Uh, I'm really glad we did this. Yes, thank you. So have I. Uh, bye, Alex, and uh, go for your IT uh, work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's up next. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been a production of KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.